Where is God in a world of uncertainty? I guess the question that we need to begin with is, do we live in a world of uncertainty? Well, a couple of weeks ago, a, a group called Birth Strike made the headlines because in response to the uncertainty that they felt about climate change, the women of this group were so scared about the future of the planet that they had decided to not have any children. At the same time, during that same week, school children around the world went on strike uh, from school and marched on various cities and towns uh, around the world, calling for environmental reform. Why? Because... And I quote one headline, there is uncertainty about the future of the planet. In the political world, Brexit has raised uncertainty levels, if you like, to a high point that I don't think we've experienced as a country since the last world war. As a result, just this week, in fact, it's been reported that the economy has slumped, raising the risk of job losses and consumer confidence in a particular index that was in the Times this week, as it is at an all-time low point since the last war. There is uncertainty regarding the climate. There is uncertainty regarding uh, political leaders and the governance of our country and the economy as a result. Now, in some ways, all this uncertainty is is rather refreshing, isn't it? I was quite amused to watch a a BBC News reporter the other day standing in front of number 10, and uh, they were asked a question by the pundit in the studio, and they just went, huh? They just didn't know what to say. They're completely stumped. They just don't know what is going to happen. And have you noted that I haven't even mentioned national or international security? Perhaps we have normalised our, uh, our readiness for attack. Our country still remains at, uh, the threat level is still at severe and knife crime is at its all-time highest. Looking further afield, various world leaders seem set on provoking one another in thinly veiled power plays, don't they? And with the tragic events unfolding in Christchurch, New Zealand on Friday, are we becoming all too familiar with bloodshed and instability in our life today in this so-called enlightened and civilised culture in which we live? So do we think we live in uncertain and unstable times? Well, relatively, yes, we probably do. It certainly feels that way, doesn't it? But in comparison to many countries across the world, um, we enjoy an enviable level of safety and security and stability. And let's just you know, put this in perspective. We must be so thankful for that, shouldn't we? But that doesn't diminish the uncertainty of our times that we feel day by day. However, the question here is, does that that reality of our lives, the uncertainty, does that undermine the claim of the Christian faith that God exists and he is who he claims to be in his word, the Bible? People are already asking, I don't know if you've seen on the placards, the news and the tragic events down in Christchurch in New Zealand. People are already putting up notes, aren't they, beside the flowers. Where is God? Can God really exist and can be in control of all things, as the Bible claims? If the world is so unstable, 
If our existence is so fragile and uncertain, and if a gunman can just walk around and kill so many, where is God in all of that? It is interesting, isn't it? Often when tragedy strikes, God gets hauled out and dismissed. After all, how could a good and loving, sovereign God allow such bloodshed? Either that or just God gets blamed. So does this tragedy in some way prove that God doesn't exist at all? Given how out of control the world seems to be. Now you see, by the question, the assumption that many make is that God being present would sort out everything and and make things how we want them to be. Because what people do is they often pigeonhole God into being like a, you know, a big, cuddly, benevolent grandfather. You know, probably with Werther's original, you know, to sort of hand out to you, because that's what all grandfathers do, apparently. But that kind of God never interferes, does he, with our day-to-day lives. He's just that cuddly figure that you turn to in times of trouble, when you're feeling a little bit blue, because he will deal with your felt needs in the way that you determine he can. Oh, that is a God. That is many gods that have been created within man-made religions. In religion, you see, God is present when you want him present in your life, in your way, always comfortable, always gentle, always supportive of your life choices. But that is not God who revealed himself in his word, the Bible. That is not God who revealed himself throughout history. And people ask, you know, where is God in a world of uncertainty? But in that, they are making the assumption that they want God to be near to them. But of course, in the way that they determine. In our remaining time, I want to ask one important underlying question that will help us, I think, with our main question. And the question is this, and it's really personal. Are you sure? Are you sure you want God to be near you? Are you really sure? Because you can't ask, oh, where is God? Without first understanding who God is. And then working out whether you want him present, whether you want him near in your uncertainty. So what I want to do, and that's why we've had our passage printed, I want to show you who God is, who he really is, as he has revealed himself. And I want to show you that having God near, present in your life, is the greatest thing absolutely ever. But I also want to show you that having God near can also be the worst thing ever. Organised religion, you see, has utterly deceived as it makes God into an accessible deity. But throughout the Bible, the complete opposite is true. The whole Bible from cover to cover shows us that God is utterly inaccessible in his glory and majesty. He's so big. He's so transcendent. He's so powerful. He is so holy. 
that we as humans can't be near him in our, in our imperfection. Back in the Old Testament, and I'll happily give you a Bible if you want to have a look at it later, and you can steal it and take it away, and that's fine. Back in the Old Testament, there's this character called Moses, who approached God, and he said, Oh, God, yeah, really chummy. I, I want to see you face to face, God. But it was actually God in his love for Moses who put Moses in this kind of little cleft in a rock and only allowed God, sorry, only allowed Moses to literally see the word is God's backward parts in the Hebrew. It's a bit strange, isn't it? But there we go. But that, you know, even that wasn't God allowing Moses to see him in his perfect, holy brilliance. Moses just got God as he just passed. He could see his back. But all he really saw was God proclaiming to him. He only heard God's words. You see, the all-powerful God is so majestic. To come into his presence would truly mean the end of any of us. Moses once went up a mountain uh, and God spoke to him and uh, to reveal his will for the people. Uh, and so wonderful was God's glory that he came down, his, his face was literally glowing. And I know what you're thinking, perhaps some of you. It sounds kind of otherworldly, doesn't it? Yes. Because I want that kind of God. And I think you probably do too. You see, the God of man-made religion is so comfortable and unimpressive. The God of the Bible is otherworldly, utterly awesome and powerful. God's near presence is not a kind of cuddly comfort blanket you can turn, into, turn to in your troubles. God's presence in, in, in your life is majestic, unsettling, uncomfortable and even dangerous. Many of you know C.S. Lewis's um, great little... Um, <clears throat> collection of children's books in Narnia. I, I do ref- reference them a lot. I absolutely love them. And uh, in one of them, well, in all of them, uh, the godlike figure is, is, a, is called Aslan. And Aslan's a lion. And, and if you know anything about lions, I don't know if you, you know, probably pet them all of you. You do that? Yellow lion. No, we don't do that, do we? Aslan is a, is a lion with a roar that can silence his greatest foe. Aslan is a lion who has claws that can rip anyone to shreds. And so I ask again, are you sure that you want God to be near you? God is terrifyingly glorious and holy. And so in many ways... God is the biggest problem in all of our lives. Yet the Bible, you see, also tells us that God is infinitely loving. And the story of the Bible is God reaching out to stubborn people like me, and perhaps you as well, in his love. And the passage that we heard earlier, do please have a look down at it. You'll see it's a, it's a wonderful summary of God's ultimate plan to love us and be relationally near us. See, God's answer to our biggest problem, yes, our biggest problem is him. But his answer to uh, that biggest problem is also him. Wonderfully so. 
in his gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, who literally, in one of the other accounts in the New Testament, he literally pitched his tent amongst us. He came near. God has come down in human flesh. And throughout the Bible, right from Genesis 1, the whole way through, God's continual call to us as people, as humanity, is where are you? And it's not where are you as in spatially, as in are you over there, are you over there? No, the continual call of God is where are you in relationship with me? Are you near to God? Are you in a relationship with God? How can you be? Well, here's the answer. Look again with me at Jesus, God's son. If you want to know God and be relationally near to God in his love, there is only one way you can. And his name is Jesus. And he was God's son. See, if you have this caricatured view of Jesus being a nice teacher, baby in a stable, meek and mild, prepare right now for your minds to be blown. I expect splatterings across the wall, metaphorically. The historical figure, Jesus, who walked on this earth 2,000 years ago. Look at verse 15. He, He tells us here that he is God's son. He is the infinite, uncreated son of God. And look at there in verse 15 again, it says he is the image of the invisible God. That is, Jesus is the exact representation of God, but in human flesh. Oh, God is invisible. Yes, he's all around us here now. He is invisible, but Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And, and the image word there, literally in the, in the Greek there, is, is icon, which we get icon from. And it literally says he's the representation, not visually, but of in God in his character, in his attributes, in his nature. See, if you want to know more about God, if you want to understand who God is and what he can do, well, you look to Jesus, to God's Son. He's God in human flesh. He has come down in his love to be near us. And if you think God is distant and removed, then can I encourage you today, come, come and find out more about Jesus. This isn't a second rate God or, you know, like we have phones, don't we? Like we get to the iPhone, whatever, you know, this isn't the next generation of God, you know, the slightly one with a few hiccups and so on. This is God in his completeness in human flesh. Uh, again, don't underestimate his power. Look with me again down at verse 15, halfway through now. Uh, we see there Jesus, <clears throat> the Son is the firstborn over all creation. Follow with me, verse 16. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. Uh, you realise what he's saying here? That God's Son was instrumental within the creation of the world. 
You may have some questions about that. Ask them later. Uh, and then also uh, things on earth, things on, he- on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rules, authorities. That's a little triplet there which is used throughout the Bible to describe all spiritual beings. Yes, Jesus is overall. And all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Let's look at those three, there's four things there very quickly. He's the firstborn, and that, that doesn't mean first in time, but actually it really means first in rank. Jesus is superior to all. Not all without distinction, but all without exception. We also see he's creator. The Bible claims that God's son was there at the beginning, but not just that. He's the goal and the end of creation. He decides. And he also sustains. Enjoy the last breath. Someone sustained you in that. Do you see all of God's God's power? Yes. Where? In his son, Jesus, as he has come near. See, if you want to know God and be relationally near to God in his love, then the only, the only place to start is by coming to find out more about his infinite gift of love. Namely, his son, Jesus. So many people, I'm sad to say, dismiss God because of organised religion where God is reduced to this yeah, oh, very charming, but benevolent grandfather figure. Or just as some scary tyrant, as in some organised religions. But in tragedy, a benevolent grandfather and a scary tyrant can only give you sweets and murder. But in the Bible, God is all-powerful. Yes, he's majestic and holy, but he's also equally in his love coming down and drawing near to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And what does he offer? Well, I want you to look, please do read the whole passage through again, but just turn to verse 21, if you may, with me. Just the last couple of verses there. Paul is speaking to a church in Colossae. They've been taken up with a a philosophy called Gnosticism at the time, which kind of like, demoted the nature of Jesus to being one of many emanations of God. And Paul speaks into this church, early church, 2,000 years ago, and speaks truth of who Jesus really is. And having trusted Jesus, having welcomed him to be near to them in their hearts, look what is true. Verse 21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now, having trusted Jesus, having trusted, if you go back a couple of verses, to his reconciling work on the cross, of him shedding his blood so that you didn't have to take the justice that your rebellion against God deserves. But now he has reconciled you. By Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Do you see the stark distinction there? 
You can either be alienated relationally from God. Oh, God will still come near to you. But at that point, you'll be his enemy. Or through trusting Jesus, you can be reconciled to God. God will come close and you will only know his eternal love and forgiveness. It's really interesting. In times of uncertainty and trouble, it's easy to make God the fall guy, to vent our frustrations as we live in a very broken and fractured world. But I hope you realise God doesn't ever promise a life of ease. Pain-free. Uncertainty will always be in our reality. But into that, into that uncertainty, into our reality, Jesus has come as the supreme image of God, the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the world. And he's come to give himself up. He went through death. He experienced and took on himself the terrifying nearness of God so that we did not have to. Instead, we can know God and be close to God because if we trust Jesus, as we see in that verse, we can be made holy. That is perfect. And free from any accusation of God. God can look upon us and he, all he can see, if we trusted in Jesus, all he will see is Jesus' perfect life counted as ours. I mentioned earlier C.S. Lewis' depiction of Jesus in Narnia, the book. So, uh, he's Aslan, the fierce lion. There's a scene in C.S. Lewis's um, The Magician's Nephew. It's one of the early ones in that series. So one of the little boys called Diggory meets Aslan. I quoted this the other week, but uh, his mother was sick in the story. And he wants to ask Aslan's help. But he's afraid. And Lewis writes this. Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great front feet and the huge claws on them. Now... In his despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own. And wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own. For the moment, that for a moment he felt as if the lion must be really sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know grief is great. Only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good to one another. God does not promise To make our lives free from pain and suffering. But God offers to stand with us. He offers to come near in and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a world of comfort. I think Lewis absolutely nails it because Aslan says to Diggory, he says, I know Jesus knows our grief. 
It is sometimes great. And he knows because he's experienced infinitely more. But if you love him and you trust him in and through the uncertainties and struggles of this life, he will one day bring an end to all grief and uncertainty. And that, my friends, is the certainty and the sure and certain hope that each and every Christian here knows in their hearts today. Oh, where is a God in a world of uncertainty? For the Christian, we live in a world of uncertainty, yes. But we live certain, certain that one day God in his love will restore all things and come close to his people in eternity. And we know that truth in our hearts today because God by his spirit has come close in every Christian's heart. Let me finish, if I may, before we have a time for some questions, I hope. With this sobering reality, don't ask me why, but I've enjoyed enjoying um, reading a little bit of Friedrich Nietzsche at the moment, who's quite a depressing man. Go back 125 years and German philosopher Nietzsche believed that he and others, as he had put it, had murdered God. God was dead, they declared. But Nietzsche himself conceded that the death of God leaves the world colder. In Nietzsche's parable of the madman, he described, and he was, by the way, he described what his life was like having murdered God and removed any thought of God from his life. He wrote this, has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need a light? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of divine decomposition? God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. Nietzsche and his contemporaries may have celebrated in their minds murdering God, but existentially, how they felt, their existence, and they all admit it. Feuerbach, Nietzsche, they all do. It felt meaningless. It felt empty. It felt cold. Where is God in a world of uncertainty? You can be like Nietzsche. You can murder God and remove him from your life as best as you think you can. But one day God will draw near. And you will be his enemy. Or you can draw near to God as his reconciled loved one. And then God will eternally draw near to you. And in a world full of uncertainties and brokenness, this is the sure and the certain reality in each and every Christian heart and mind. We're going to just spend a couple of minutes. Why don't we turn to the people beside us? Uh, we sometimes.